have this first thing that we are monotheists. We are believers in one God. Okay, there we go. So far, so good. Most people aren't really fighting us on that, but there are lots of religions around the world and cults that conceptualize of a multiple gods who are, pan, who are um, multi-theists. I forget the term for that. Pantheist, Dad? What's the... Yeah, thanks. Polytheist. Thank you. Yeah, pantheist is everything is God. God is in everything. Polytheist, multiple gods. My bad. Now, the question then becomes, does the Old Testament, which is so clear about saying there's one God, allow for the concept, that, or allow for the concept, not prove, but allow for the concept of a Trinitarian idea, that there are, are multiple persons within this one Godhead? And this is, again, not proving the case, but it's just showing that there's allowing for it. So if you think of Genesis 1.26, first chapter in the Bible, right? The creation of man, well, how does it read? It says, let, does anybody know the pronoun? us make man in our image. Now, some people will say, well, that us is just sort of a royal we, you know, it's not, it's what man could be, but you can't deny that the, the, the pronoun us is a plural form that could include a con, the, if you think of the Trinity as these three persons in uh, having a meeting and sort of talking, how are we gonna do? Let us make man in our image. There's that possibility. And a key text, boy, this is another one to mark in your Bible or write down Psalm 110, Psalm 110, verse 1, the New Testament writers lean hard into this psalm when they're talking about the deity of Christ. It says this. If you read it in the English, it'll say, the Lord said to my Lord. And you'll notice those two words, Lord, the first one's in all caps, and the second one is in small caps. The Lord said to my Lord. And the translators showing us that there's two different Hebrew words being used there. If you were to try to render it, transliterate it, it would say, the I am or Yahweh said to my sovereign one, to Adonai. So it's this conversation happening between two beings that have this appellation of divinity. Does that make sense? So the, the New Testament writers lean hard into that. It gets quoted in Hebrews and other places, Psalm 110. So there's definitely an allowance, in the, uh, uh, an echo, if you would, in the foreshadowing in the Old Testament that there could be um, more persons in the Godhead. Uh, now listen, I know I'm moving quick. Since there's enough of you here and I can sort of see you, if you have a question about this or I go quick, misquote something, please raise your hand. I would love to. Yeah, Robert. Yes, good point. Yeah, Adonai would be the son in that, in that case. Very good. Thank you for clarifying that. So then we get into the um, three persons that, are, that we see mentioned, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, or God the Son, and God the Father. And what do we see about them? And what we find is this interesting way of describing each of them that have similar characteristics, in some cases, the same characteristics. So for example, things like omniscience, Jesus knows things that he couldn't know as just a man, right? He says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, apparently reading the scroll, right? He says, um, Jesus knowing their thoughts, he does things that only God could do. He, he uh, commands that the waves be still and they obey him and the disciples are like, who is this guy? that even nature, you know, that the wind and the sea obey him. He has power over nature. He has power over demons. They are quiet when he commands them. He has power over all of these different things that only God could have. Um, he, is, he is obviously a person, so we see those, those features about him. And then, of course, he, is, uh, he, he says things that indicate that he is God. So uh, John is a, the strongest gospel at, at demonstrating this. You hear him say, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10. A really key verse, John chapter eight, verse 58. He's having this discussion with the Pharisees and he says, 
They say to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was born, I am, which I, I am is the Hebrew, you know, transliteration of the Yahweh, that, that preexistent one. He's saying, I am. And so we, some might say, well, Michael, you're leaning hard. I, mean, I don't know if they really thought he was claiming to be God. Well, we know that because the next thing they do is they pick up stones to throw at him, which is what you do for blasphemers. And he says, what are the good deeds that I've done? Are you stoning me for? And they say, none of those. It's because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. That's why we're throwing rocks at you. So they understood Jesus to be making a divine claim there. Now, just to be fair here, uh, critics of our view would say, yeah, but the Pharisees misunderstood him. Mm, I, don't, I think that's really weak. I think that's really weak. It seems very clear that they understood him and Jesus uh, made that claim by the, with the language that he was using. Um, to me, one of my favorite verses that I use sometimes when people come into my door is John chapter 20, verse 28. That's John 20, 28. And it's the interaction that Thomas has with Jesus after he's risen from the dead. And Jesus, of course, appears and says, hey, you said you'd only believe if you could put your hand in my side and put your hand in, in the nail holes. Here I am, you know? And what does oh, Judas, sorry, what does Thomas do? Thomas kneels before him and says, oh, my Lord and my God. So um, the cults who deny this doctrine will say essentially that, that, uh, that Thomas was swearing or making, he'd be like, oh, my Lord, and my God is always talking to someone else, which makes no sense when you read it. He's clearly making a statement to Jesus. You're my Lord and my God, the one that I worship. And Jesus receives that worship. When, when people bow before him, wipe his feet with their hair, he receives that. And that's very different from all other righteous created beings. Do you remember somebody besides God who wanted to receive worship? Lucifer, right? <laughs> when you look at Isaiah 14, I will ascend to the mountain. You know, I'm gonna be, raise myself above God. When he tempts Christ in Matthew chapter four, what does he say? Hey, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus says, no, the Bible says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, thou shalt worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And one of my favorite ones on this too, in Revelation chapter 22, John having this, this revelation from God, there's an angel giving it to him, starts to bow down to worship the angel. And the angel's like, don't do that, man, get up. You know, <laughs> He says, I'm a servant of God, just like you only worship God. So the fact that Jesus receives worship seems to be reflective of his understanding of who he really is. So with Jesus, we have him uh, as a personal being. We have him with the, the powers of God and we have him receiving worship as God and people giving that to him. The Bible is seeming to take time to draw our attention to that, that people worshiped Jesus. There's more that we could say about that, but I'll just leave that there for now. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one that I think is sometimes a little trickier for people. And I would love, it's probably time that we do another teaching on the Holy Spirit just in general, because there's a lot of wonky doctrine. The Holy Spirit, let me just say this, is a person. The Holy Spirit, it's odd because he has that appellation, the Holy Spirit, rather than a, a direct name. Um, there's a lot we could say about that, but he's not a substance. So sometimes because we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, people think of him like water or, or a gas or some ethereal thing. No, he's a person. Um, he is referred to with personal pronouns. He acts like a person. Acts 13, the Holy Spirit said. You can grieve the Holy Spirit just as you could a person. Ephesians chapter four, verse 30. And he's equated with Christ. Romans chapter eight, verse nine. The one who doesn't have the spirit of Christ and the spirit of God uses those two terms interchangeably. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter three, verse 13 says, the Lord is the spirit. There's an equivalency there and is equated with the Father in Acts chapter five, verses three through four, the Ananias and Sapphira story, where it says, 
how has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then a verse or two later, he says, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. So the apostles recognized the Holy Spirit as, as God. So what do we do? When we put all these things together, and I won't spend time talking about um, God the Father. I think that one's the easiest one to establish. But when you look at these three things, you say, okay, the Bible describes God the Father as God, one God, supreme being that we should give our worship to, the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then it goes through and it describes Jesus with some of these same attributes as God. And then it takes the Holy Spirit and does the same thing. What, do, what are we to do with that? So we have, are left with a, several possibilities. One is that the Bible is, is in conflict with itself, that the Old Testament says there's one God and the New Testament says there's multiple gods. And Muslims would accuse us of being polytheists, of worshiping multiple gods. And we say, no, the Bible has to be um, has to be consonant, has to agree with itself all the way through. So I don't know if you ever did like the logic problems when you were younger and you said in, in geometry, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, um, if A equals B and B equals C, then A must also equal C. You guys remember that logical formation? And that's kind of what we've done as we look at this and we go, well, the Bible says there's one God and the Bible says these three persons possess all of these attributes of deity, the powers and then what are we to do? Well, we're to say these three operate together as one. They're one being, or excuse me, they're one God, not one being. Now, someone will probably respond, Michael, you just use logic to say a way of explaining how you arrive at this doctrine, but doesn't logic also dictate that what you're saying is impossible? Isn't it true that you can't have three people in the world who are also one? They might be united in purpose. They might be on the same team. They might be genetically linked, but they can't be one, can they? And my response to that is to say, this goes back to where we started at the beginning. If there is an infinite God, then it seems to me likely or possible that there are things about him that are difficult for me to conceptualize in the limited way of knowing that I have. And we have analogs for that in the world today. You think about a child and there are things that you try to explain to them as an adult and they're like, that cannot be true. There's no way that could be true because they don't have the ability to understand it. It isn't that it isn't true. They just lack the, the categories or concepts yet to understand it. So I have this, I thought this was really useful. Um, how many of you took geometry when you were in high school or something? How many of you hated geometry when you were in high school? Okay, so uh, who can tell me one of some of the definitional truths of a triangle? Here's a triangle. How many, um, how many angles can a triangle have? Three. three, good job. How many degrees must those three angles equal? 180, you can have like, this has a 90 and uh, two 45s, that makes 80, or excuse me, 180. But a definition of a triangle is 180 degrees between the three angles. But did you know that I could say to you, hey, I can show you a triangle that has more than 180 degrees. Would I be telling you the truth? No? no? <laughs> yeah, and if you were in high school, that answer would be correct. Yeah, when we learned geometry in high school, if I said, hey, teacher, I can show you a triangle that has more than 180 degrees. They'd say, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You're going to get that question wrong. So let me show you a little thing that I made over here, sort of. I did not make this basketball. Yeah, thanks. But if you think of the basketball sort of like a globe, let's, uh, there's a point here. This would be like the North Pole. And on the backside, there's another point where these lines intersect. That's the uh, South Pole. And on a globe or a sphere... If you were to draw a line between two points, let's say I also drew a hemisphere all the way around, or an equator, equator, right, to divide the hemispheres. Am I making sense so far? You got a North Pole, a South Pole, and an equator. Got it? 
Okay. The shortest distance between two points on a sphere, like from the North Pole down to the, the equator, would be this line right here, which I've tried to show off with this cool tape job. I know, I know you're impressed by the tape job. And if you were to do it from uh, this point on the equator up to the North Pole, it would be this line. And then if you were to connect those two points on the equator with uh, Sharpie and tape, as I've done thusly, it would look like this. And if you were to turn it just a little bit like that, you would be looking at what? Which shape do those three lines make? A triangle. And you're like, well, it's kind of a wonky triangle. Well, yeah, but it's a triangle inscribed on a sphere. So we have what's called spherical geometry. The geometry you and I learn when we are in high school is Euclidean geometry or planar geometry. It's limited to two dimensions. And so all of the proofs that we learn are predicated on that one understanding that we're limited to two dimensions. But all of us know we don't live in two dimensions. And any of you who have done construction realize <laughs> that sometimes there's a third dimension that causes you problems. So if you were to take uh, that speed square, thank you for giving me that term, Eric, or Everett, would you be a demonstrator? Do you want to do it? You don't have to. Do you want to help me with my uh, little project? If you come up right here and you take this speed square, this angle right here is called a right angle. If you take that speed square and you put it on this angle right here, can you match that corner into this corner? Does that match up? No. It doesn't match up? You sure? Doesn't this line look pretty straight on there? No? Oh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Shoot. Okay, kind of. He's going to give me a kind of. Yeah, if you look at it, if you were to measure it, I didn't have a protractor or anything to bring. It's a 90-degree angle. And if you do the same thing over here at this angle, it's 90 degrees. And you see where I'm going if you measure the third angle. It's also 90 degrees. What's 90 degrees times three? You're done. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. 270 degrees. So I can show you a triangle using uh, spherical geometry that has 270 degrees. Now, definitionally, from what we learned in high school, that's impossible, right? Just as we would say, based on our conception as humans, that it's impossible that three persons could also be one. But the problem isn't that it's impossible. It's impossible only because of our limited conception, just as a high school student couldn't understand how there could be a triangle with 270 degrees. Now, just for fun, by the way, did you know that uses also hyperbolic uh, geometry, where it's the opposite kind of a curve, and you can have triangles that have less than 180 degrees. And you can have a two-sided figure on a spherical geometry that has 180 degrees with just two sides. It's called the Digon. That's something I learned today. I thought I'd share that with you. So you may be bored with this Digon, but I wanted to share it with all of you guys. So here's the thing. Just, this is what I'm getting at is when we come to the concept of the Trinity, it's just a word to describe what we have in the biblical data. What has God said about himself? Well, it seems that he's described himself as one God. And it seems that he's described three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who possess those same attributes. And the way we put that together is we say, well, they must be God and they must be one. And that's what we call the Trinity, the tri-unity. And when we get to that part where we say, well, I don't understand that, we say, well, it's probably the same way that I have trouble understanding multiple dimensional geometry or anything else. It's just beyond my comprehension. And so at that point, I'd make this decision to trust what God has said about himself. And what, what is the word we use for that? That kind of trust. Faith, yeah. And isn't that how we operate as Christians? We walk by faith and not by sight. This isn't in some blind idea that man has put forward. It's trusting by faith what God has said about himself. And just a brief word on that, and then, I, then I'm done. So um, if you, um, when you find a good mechanic or an accountant one who is both trustworthy and good at what they do, 
you take his word for it when he says something needs to be fixed on your car, even if his explanation doesn't make sense to you. Why do you do this? Because you have wisely reasoned that his understanding of cars or tax law or medicine or whatever area of expertise they have that you don't have is better than yours. Similarly, when it comes to who God is, we do well to take his word for it when he describes things that don't make sense to us. Why? Because we wisely reason that his understanding of himself is better than ours, given that he's infinite and we are finite. It's hardly surprising that we have a difficult time understanding how he can be both three persons and yet one God. But if the word actually describes him this way, then we're wise to say we believe him. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts on that? Nope, good. Whew. Okay, and if you're the person that asked that question and you see this or hear it and I didn't answer it, hit me up and I'll do better. I think that was a great explanation, Michael. And uh, maybe I'll just speak for all of them and say, we'll just, we'll just take your word for it. <laughs> no, it's actually really good. <clears throat> um, okay, so my question is this, what is communion and who is allowed to take it? What is communion and who is allowed to take it? So um, how many of us in here know what communion is? I think most of us probably have a good, a good handle on what communion is. But um, just for the sake of reminder, sometimes when going through this kind of things, like, oh, I know what communion is. But when we read through the scriptures, it uh, just reminds us of some things that Jesus said, what the scriptures say about a certain topic. And so I'm going to go through that. Uh, I'm going to try to go through that quickly and then uh, sort of treat this as a two-part question. What is communion? And then on the back end there, then talk about who's allowed to take it. Um, welcome, <laughs> Mr. Marcus Handy. <laughs> okay, so... Um, just a couple key scripture verses here regarding communion is Luke chapter 22 and Matthew uh, chapter 26. But um, just real quickly, communion, or, or it is also known as the Lord's Supper, is um, something that's instituted. It was instituted by Jesus during his earthly ministry. And uh, this happened during the Passover meal. This was right, right before his arrest and crucifixion. And communion is the one tangible, physical way that Jesus gave us as believers to remember him by. Um, not by uh, paintings on the wall or uh, long robes or large extravagant cathedrals or churches. Or um, Jesus didn't even necessarily um, give us uh, like to hang a cross on the wall or have a cross necklace to remember him by now, I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with those things to remind us of, you know, Jesus and who he was and what he's done for us. But the one thing in scripture that he's given us to remember him by is communion, the tangible something that we can grab a hold of and look at and touch and feel. And so um, we're going to look at this, but it's, it's, communion is actually, if you read the verses, it's a command given to the disciples but I also believe it's a command given to us as followers of Christ. Um, and it says, just an interesting note, is that in Matthew 26, it says, as they were eating. So they were engaged in the Passover meal, remembering um, 
the Jewish people's deliverance from slavery. And they were having this meal together. And it says, as they were eating, that's when Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, take, this is my body, you know, and the wine and said, drink, this is my blood. It was during a meal, during a time of fellowship and sharing a meal together. Luke's account says, after they had eaten. So they're sharing a meal together, having dinner. And then after they had eaten, Jesus, you know, uh, institutes this. Now, it's not always practical for sitting in a church service to have a full meal together. But I do think it's an interesting thing to note that this is when Jesus does uh, communion, is when they're sharing a meal. So, um, again, in Luke 22, verse 19, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it. It says, And he, that is Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And, uh, and also, likewise, I'm going to read this from uh, the account in Matthew's gospel. It says, uh, speaking of the wine, he says, drink, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then uh, another verse I'd like to point us to, we just went through this in men's Bible study, so it's kind of fresh on my mind, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it's the last half of verse 25 and 26. And it's, uh, again, he's quoting Jesus here, and then Paul offers some commentary on the topic of communion. And it says, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I just chose these three verses. There are some other verses that talk about it. But from these three verses, I think we can get a really good idea of what communion is. And um, the first one is this. It's a, it's a command. Jesus says this, do this. Do this. He doesn't say, if you feel like doing this or if you want to do this or whatever. It's the command he gives the disciples. Here, I'm breaking bread. Do this in remembrance of me. Why do we take communion? Well, it's to remember Jesus. It's to remember his body broken for us, his blood spilled for us. And by the way, I think of Jesus holding up like a loaf of bread and breaking off a little chunk, and or maybe each one of the disciples broke off a little chunk. It's also kind of a beautiful picture of just the body of Christ, right? The bread representing the body. Each one of the disciples, or maybe in a church service, each one of the members of the body of Christ partaking of that little piece of the bread— and so it's like we're all joined together as one through the taking of communion, which represents the body of Christ. It's just a really beautiful picture of the body, <laughs> what we know as the body. And in the same way, um, the blood, all, I don't know how, I don't exactly know how it worked. If they had one cup and they passed it around and they all took a little sip out of it, or maybe they had those little plastic things and they, they poured a little bit, you know, like we do. I'm not sure, but it's the same picture. We're all drinking of, partaking of the blood of Christ for, again, there's another question of why, for the forgiveness of sins. So we take communion to remember Jesus' body, to remember his blood poured out for us. Well, why, do we should, why should we remember the broken body of Jesus and the blood poured out by Jesus? What's the point in remembering that? It's for the forgiveness of sins in Matthew 26, 27. We are to remember that, that his body broken should have been your body broken, 
should have been my body broken. That blood poured out should have been your blood poured out for your sins. My blood poured out for my sins. But no, it was Jesus' body and Jesus' blood for my sins. And he gives us this command, do this in remembrance of me. I think that's, uh, and that's, that's the God. I mean, that's just, that's what we need. We need to remind ourselves of that, don't we? Um, and then also in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, I read it already, but it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this might be getting a little technical, but we, by taking communion, by engaging in communion, we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. Well, who do we proclaim it to when we take communion? Ourselves. Ourselves. Amen. Yeah, sure, we might proclaim it to the person sitting next to us or maybe someone visiting the church or whatever, but I think the main point of that is to proclaim it to ourselves. Lord Jesus, you died for me. Your body was broken for me. Your blood was poured out for me. Thank you. And that's, that's actually the next on my little list of bullet points here is how do we take communion? And I never really noticed this until today when I was looking at this. But in Luke twenty two nineteen, it says he took the bread and when he had given thanks. It seems like every time Jesus takes bread, he always gives thanks before he does anything with it. And that's, I believe, how we are to engage in communion with thanksgiving. And that's, I think, maybe comes kind of natural when we're thinking of Jesus, of course, dying for us. But um, definitely worthy of mentioning, I would say, everything we do should be in thanks, with thanksgiving, the Bible teaches us. But especially communion, giving thanks to our Lord, remembering his body broken, and receiving and reminding ourselves of that forgiveness of sins. And then finally, uh, here, I have a little question. How often should I take communion? Um, some people... You know, some churches, they do communion once a month. Some churches, sorry, some churches might do it every week. Uh, There's different schools of thought on different uh, frequencies for taking communion. Some churches, like I think, I want to say the Catholic Church requires everyone to take communion at least once a year. Um, But really there is no biblical uh, requirement for how often uh, we engage in, partake in communion. Uh, there's no minimum or limit to it, really. I mean, you can take communion every day if you wanted to. It says, again, in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat the bread, um, you proclaim the Lord's death. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what Jesus is saying here is, as often as you drink it, it really doesn't matter how often you drink it. It really doesn't matter how often you do it. But when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So I don't know of any scriptural limits or requirements for how often or whatever, unless you guys have something to chime in. So that's kind of, I would say, just like the basics of what we believe about communion. Is there anything you... I was going to ask you, can I ask you a question? Yeah. So it says, uh, he says, this is my body. Mm. And he says, uh, this is my blood. And he says, this is for the forgiveness of sins. So if I don't take communion, are my sins forgiven? And is it actually his body and his blood that I'm taking, Eric? So, uh, the Bible says that our sins are forgiven by us receiving the free gift of salvation of what Jesus has done. So, uh, for example, the thief on the cross, um, where he was hanging there, he was about to die with Jesus, right next to Jesus, 
And he looks over to Jesus and he says, when you come in your kingdom, remember, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus looks over at him and says, um, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? So, amen, the guy gets saved. He believes in Jesus, receives a free gift of salvation. Did he have time to get baptized, which is a whole other question? No, he didn't. But did he have time to take communion? No, he didn't. He died on that cross that day, but Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. So, um, again, salvation is not based on anything we do. No, no, nothing, no rite or ritual we perform. It's based on accepting the free gift that Jesus offers to us. So um, taking communion is not a requirement for having your sins forgiven. Um, however, it still is a command. Like, I mean, the first command Jesus gives is believe and be baptized. It's still a command to be baptized. And it's still, I, I mean, I'm, if I'm reading this right, he says do this as a command. So if we, if we really want to follow Christ and be obedient to his word. And uh, by the way, I would say that he only commands us things that are only going to bless us, right? Amen. It's going to be a blessing to us to engage in whatever Jesus tells us to. And so, um, yes, you can be saved without taking communion. Uh, now, the next question, what was it? Is it? It says, this is the bread and this is the body. This is my body, this is my blood, right, okay. So I'm not an expert on this, there's, I think there's three beliefs. There's transubstantiation, where um, the, when you're holding the, and, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the Catholic viewpoint where the priest uh, administers communion to the uh, congregants, and they believe that actually when that bread is in the hand of the priest, that it is literally the body of Christ, and that the blood in the same way is literally the, the blood of Christ in some way. Um, and I, I could be wrong. Maybe it's when they take it, they believe it turns into it, but it's literally, it like, literally like it's a, it's a piece of bread now, and now after it's in my mouth, then it's like flesh, like Jesus' flesh. Um, and I believe when Jesus institutes this, he, um, if, again, just looking at the scriptures, and I've, I've had questions like this before because he says this. He says, it is my body and it is my blood. So if we believe in a literal interpretation of scripture, you could look at that and go, well, wow, maybe, maybe it does turn into like his body and his blood. I, you know, I don't know. Um, and we do believe in a literal interpretation of scripture, right? So I've kind of wrestled with these kind of things before, like, oh, I don't know. At the same time, um, it says that Jesus took bread. So he's holding not a piece of flesh, not his body that he like ripped off, but he's holding a piece of bread. And he says, this is my body, you know? And so I believe that the uh, communion elements, bread and juice or wine in this, in this case, wine, in our case, we typically use juice like cranberry juice. I believe the communion elements are symbolic of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, like a symbol representing Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. Um, I want to be careful because sometimes this could come across a bit flippantly, maybe like, oh, it's not actually Jesus' body, it's not actually Jesus' blood, it's just a piece of bread and it's just a little wine, um, which I do believe it, it's symbolic. But I also believe there is I don't think it turns into flesh or blood when we take it. 
literally. But I do believe there is a supernatural element to taking communion. And um, not to say, well, it's just a little cracker, a little chunk of bread or whatever, and just gulp it down. But there is a, some sort of spiritual communion with Jesus that takes place when we do that. So is it actually the bread and blood? I would say no. Um, that would be, I guess, how I would interpret the scripture, my opinion. But um, I don't want to diminish any, should I say, spiritual or supernatural. Uh, it's holy, yeah, thank you. It's, it's, it's holy, it's sanctified, set apart. It's something that... Um, Jesus gave us to do, so, yeah. Okay, Any, anything else? Comments? Yep, yeah, that's the next one. Who is allowed to take communion? And I think this question is probably, maybe stems from uh, different church experiences. Um, some churches actually have what is referred to as closed communion, where you're not allowed to uh, participate in communion at a particular church if you're not a member of that church in good standing. Um, and so, and then again, I'm, I, I'm not an expert on Catholicism, but I know uh, there, there are some rules regarding uh, communion at the Catholic Church in terms of there's some certain things you have to do leading up to it, like uh, you, you can't eat uh, food, think you can't eat food or anything you, but water for an hour before you take communion or you're not allowed to partake in it. And then also if, you're, uh, if you have sinned in some way and haven't demonstrated uh, penance or gone to confession, they uh, won't allow you to participate in communion. So there's some different um, rules and requirements that some people will limit who can take communion. And... Um, I'm going to talk about this. <laughs> Sorry. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, um, is a really good teaching about the Lord's Supper and communion. So I'm going to read it, starting verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So, um, communion is reserved for believers in Jesus Christ. And... Um, Scripture uh, bears this out. And some, some people will look at this verse where it says, whoever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body. So uh, a lot of people look at this and they say, well, um, you know, I, I, I understand you, you say you're a Christian, but I see, you know, I've heard the words come out of your mouth and I see some of the, the things you're doing in your life. And, um, you know, I, I think you might be in some kind of sin. I don't think, you know, you're really worthy to take communion. Or maybe if we have some uh, condemnation in our life that we're dealing with or whatever, and go, I'm just not worthy to take communion. Like, I have to get my life right before I can take communion, before I can um, engage in this uh, thing that Jesus gave us to do. 
and you and this this like uh, it's this idea of kind of like condemnation, like oh, I'm not worthy, I'm I'm just a, a wretched, worthless sinner, and I can't take communion. And I believe what he's talking about here is is well, first of all, who is worthy? Right. <laughs> like none of us are worthy, right? <laughs> I mean, it is true. Like you feel unworthy, you feel like a sinner. Yes. yes, you are a sinner. Yes, I am unworthy. I am a sinner. Am I worthy to come before Jesus and commune with him? No, I am not. And that's why we're saved by us receiving that free gift of salvation. And taking communion is to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. He says this, do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say, do this to be forgiven or do this of he doesn't say do this to be forgiven, but do this to remember your forgiveness of sins and remember Jesus, my, my body and my blood broken for you. Body broken, blood poured out. So I believe what this verse is talking about here is um, taking, it, taking communion in an unworthy manner, as in like sort of uh, not giving uh, worth to the act of communion or um, saying, well, you know, I, um, yeah, I guess Jesus, you know, died for me and shed his blood for me and whatever. I don't know. Everybody else is doing it. I don't want to look weird. So I'm going to just go ahead and do it and, and whatever. It's, you're not giving worth. You're not actually remembering what Jesus has done for you. Maybe, and I believe that this is actually talking about uh, non-Christians as well. Someone who's not a Christian actually is acknowledging um, Jesus' body was broken, Jesus' blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, but I don't believe all that garbage. I'm not really, I don't want to, I don't need to accept forgiveness of sins. I don't really want to be a Christian, um, but I don't want to feel weird or look weird in church because everybody else is doing it, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. What that person is doing, the scripture tells us, is actually eating and drinking judgment on themselves because they're acknowledging the sacrifice Jesus gave for them, but at the same time denying it and saying, I don't want that. And this is an alarming verse. It says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, in other words, discerning that this is the body of Jesus broken for you, if you eat in that way, he says, to the Corinthian church, evidently there was some in the church at this time. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill. You're sick. And um, some of you have died. Like this is a, this is a heavy thing to not um, take communion in an unworthy manner. And so I want to circle back a little bit to some of these uh, regulations that maybe you might call them regulations that some churches put on. Well, we have closed communion. And if you're not a member of our church, you're not allowed to take communion here with us. And I believe maybe that those types of things were maybe instituted with the right heart because they didn't want maybe an unbeliever or maybe someone coming into their church that they don't know and inviting them to take communion, knowing that they could be drinking judgment on themselves. So I see where there may be a little value in that, in limiting or regulating uh, communion. However, um, we believe that whoever, believe, whoever has put their faith in Jesus Christ is a member of the body of Christ, is a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Whether you're 
we don't have membership here, but whether you're a member here or a member somewhere else or wherever, like if you believe in Jesus, you're a member of the church. And as a leader of the church, I would never want to deny someone the opportunity to engage in communion in something that Jesus actually told them to do. They've come to church to take communion. I'm going to say, no, I, you can't do that here. I'm not going to let you do that here. I, I wouldn't want to limit that. And so um, any church that, however, I will say this, I do believe it is up to church leadership. If you're going to, if, if to have an open communion table to invite anyone and everyone up to partake in communion, that a, maybe just a simple warning to be issued. Um, and just, just kind of some of the same things that I've talked about just now is like uh, communion is, is reserved for believers and uh, communion is reserved for those who will give worth to it, applying the body and the blood of Jesus to their own life, remembering the forgiveness of sins, maybe even asking. It's a good time to just, before we take communion, maybe in those few moments before taking the bread and the, the juice to just say, Lord, forgive me. I sinned this week. I sinned yesterday. I did something I shouldn't have done. And just, the Bible says that um, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So we can take that moment to confess our sins, be forgiven of those sins, and take communion and remember the forgiveness of sins. (laughs) And uh, I think just a simple warning issued is like, if you're not going to do that or willing to do that to that person, I would invite that person to not partake in communion, not out of you, you can't take communion here because da, 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 but it's actually loving that person because to encourage someone to take communion in an unworthy manner, hey, it's okay, come up and have everybody else is doing it. We're actually exposing that person to maybe some kind of sickness, to drinking judgment on themselves and so uh, I would just say uh, we want to make sure we're well-informed when taking communion. Um, so who's allowed to take it? If you're a believer in Jesus, you're allowed to take communion whenever, wherever um, you feel led. Is there any other, anything you guys might add, think about, something I missed? All right. Well, uh, so my question is, is why are Bible studies segregated uh, male and female by gender? Right, and so um, my answer is not going to be quite as as uh, long as these other guys' because it's a fairly straightforward question. But I think we can we can look into it a little bit and and uh, dig in and get a little further understanding of why we do that and uh, and why we don't do it sometimes too. So um, the Bible gives no command about about Bible study or segregating male and female um, in a in a small group setting like that uh, for anything, and so. Um, in fact, there's actually, there's a lot of Bible studies really going on in, in our church and in other ones right now that aren't segregated, right? And so Sunday morning service, right? We come together. Yes, it's a service. We have worship. It's not a small group setting, questions and answers and digging into it individually, person by person, but we're studying the Bible. Um, and we are, it is indeed a Bible study. You know, Chris, spends hours every week digging through it so we can just rightly divide the word of God and, and, um, and feed us, you know? And so, um, so that's a Bible study that's, that's mixed male and female. Um, a lot of churches have the midweek service, right? And, and uh, we did that years ago. It was a, it was a midweek Bible study. It was 
same thing as a Sunday, but on a Thursday. And so uh, our home groups, our home groups are kind of an extension from our Sunday service, right? More of a, a Bible study, small group setting. And so, um, so that's obviously, obviously mixed, male and female. Uh, my mom and dad were part of a, uh, they actually, I, I think they, they didn't necessarily start it, but they had a, a, like three or four couples, married couples that would come to our house and they would have a Bible study. You know, just with, uh, and, I, and I really liked that they did that. Just husbands and wives would come together to just dive into the word of God together and, and um, have that time and fellowship. And then we've got our youth group too, um, that Marcus leads, youth group and high school group. Those are Bible studies and they're all, um, they're all male and female, right? They're all mixed. Um, and then of course we've got our, our and what this question is really digging into is the men's Bible study and then a woman's Bible study. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're, they're the only exceptions that we have. And so, um, and so a couple of things that I just wanted to, to get into here. Like I said, the Bible doesn't, doesn't give us any direction on this. We, we're, we're really free to operate um, how we want to operate as long as we're glorifying the Lord and everything that we're doing, right? And so um, I would just like to point out a few little points here. Uh, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Um, and my wife bought me some brand new little sticky notes and I didn't use them. And so, um, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. That's you ran out on I know, right? <laughs> um, there we go. So let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, uh, for he who promised is faithful and the order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see uh, the day drawing near, right? So he's just, he's encouraging us to meet together, right? And so we know it's biblical to meet together. And, and it says in there, uh, and all the more, as you say, see the day drawing near, right? And I, I think that, well, I know for a fact that we're closer right now than we were yesterday to the Lord coming back, right? And we can see that in our culture. Um, and, and so I, the further and further we get closer to the Lord's coming, Lord's return. I mean, right here it says that we should be meeting more and more. And I really feel like that's just because the days are going to get darker and darker and darker until the Lord gets back, right? And so we need that encouragement. We need that to just build each other up, right? Um, I'll just point out, uh, I won't turn there, but 1 Thessalonians 5.11. He's just encouraging us to build each other up in that way. Um, And then Titus 2, 1 through 8 is kind of um, you know, I was just really praying that the Lord would kind of reveal something to me. Just, um, you know, I just really like to stand on the word of God whenever we go. And my wife, I think, kind of gets annoyed with that maybe a little bit. I'm like, oh, what's the Bible say about it? You know, but it's God has given us his word. Like, let's use it for our benefit. Right. And so uh, Titus 2, 1 through 8. Um, but you must speak what is consistent with, with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. Uh, they are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and children, to be sensible, pure, good homemakers, and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. Likewise... Um, encourage the young men to be sensible about everything 
Set an example of good works yourself with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed having nothing bad to say about us. All right, and so here we see, um, we see the encouragement to women pour into women, men to pour into men, right? And, and I think that's just a really safe place to be um, when we're talking about really diving into like our lives and sharing our, our lives and struggles and stuff that we're going through. Um, so like what's the purpose of a Bible study, right? It's to grow closer to God, to build each other up, to ask questions, to build relationships. Um, and it allows a smaller, more intimate environment when we, where we can share our struggles, confess our sins and confide in others. Um, and just to dive deeper in our relationship with Christ. We want to know God's word so it can be in it, in us, so we can be closer to the Lord, so we can know his heart, know his plan for our lives, know the promises he has for us. Um, and so that's the, that's the purpose of a Bible study, to study the Bible, know the Lord better, grow closer to the Lord, be closer to our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So, um, so why segregate it by gender, right? We've already kind of gone over like what they're for, but why do it by gender, right? Well, God created them male and female, right? We aren't the same. We might be both created in the image of God, but we're not the same. There's male and female, and they're both created in the image of God, and they're both wired totally different, right? And so... Um, so because we're created differently, we're going to learn differently. We're going to learn differently. We're not going to be on the same wavelength all the time. And even if we are, like me and my wife have been together for like 21 years, 20, more than that, 22 years. I don't know. It's been a long time. <laughs> I mean, it's gone by really quick. <laughs> um, right? And so, but we're wired differently. It's just how God made us. And so it, it's it's taken almost all of those years to really get on the same page, I feel like, with a lot of things. Praise the Lord. Um, but right, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to take longer for men and women to get on the same page if they're in a mixed gender group, right? And so by having all men in a group, like we're going to be able to link up pretty quick. We all kind of know what each other are thinking, right? There's only a few things in life that really drive men um, what are you laughing for? That's a different Bible study. That's for a men's Bible study. Yeah, exactly. Um, right, and so uh, we want to we want to want to be productive in our meetings, right? And so that's one of the points. We'll just be able to link up a lot quicker with, like, for me, for men. Um, we want to create an environment where people can share comfortably without other people feeling uncomfortable, right? Um, how comfortable would it be for a woman? At a, at a multi-gender Bible study for a man to be sharing about his intense porn addiction that he has, right? As she's sitting right next to him, like, you know, all creeped out and grossed out. Yeah, and so, um, so you know, we want to we wanna create an environment that people are comfortable to share and people are comfortable to receive also. Um, and it's just, so it's super important to, to have that. And, and you cannot have that in a, in a mixed gender Bible study. It just doesn't work. Um, you know, likewise, that same guy that's got that porn addiction that needs help, that needs to be encouraged by his brothers, 
how how likely is he to to share that problem that that sin that he has with his brothers if there is a lady sitting there right i'm going to be a lot like if it was me which it was at one point i'm going to be much more reserved i'm going to be i'm going to hold back i'm going to be uncomfortable don't want to hurt her feelings don't want to make her feel weird so i'm just not going to say anything right when i really need my brothers to pray for me cuz we all oh Eric, I know, I'm sure you guys can pull up the scripture, but we all, we all, there is no sin, no temptation that's not uncommon to every man, right? Yep. I can't cite that right now, but, um, but so it's, it's, it's super important, you know, and, and like men, like we're gonna, we're gonna be thinking and, and concerned with work, wives, alcohol, anger, jealousy, pornography, and women, like you guys are gonna be much more geared to like, not really sure what you guys are more interested in. <laughs> Not really sure, but whatever you guys talk about on Monday nights, yeah, right? It's not going to be the same. We aren't going to be able to compute, right? Um, it's just, it's not the same. We were created male and female, created differently. And so there is a time and a place for that mixed gender Bible study, and it's great and it's good, but there also needs, there's a need for there to be a men and women Bible study where we can have that intimate trust and open up and have brothers lay hands on brothers, you know, and, um, yeah, I could, I was going to say something. I'm really glad I didn't say that though. Um, shut up. <laughs> I know. Right. You never know when there's going to be the creepy guy there crying to cop a feel. Right. And so, um, but also it just, it eliminates the possibility. Like where's, where's a lot of Bible studies at people's houses, right? So if I'm hosting a Bible study and my wife's out of town, or maybe I'm not even married and Marcus's wife is coming over to my house thinking that April's going to be there or maybe not, you know? You never want, I never want to put myself in a situation where there's question for my spouse or Marcus or, Marcus or anybody else. Like, um, and I kind of relate this, like me and Eric and Allie and my wife have been friends for years, right? Um, they watch our kids for us and um, just we're close. Like we're like brothers, they are our family. But going over to their house when Eric's not home to pick up my kids I'm like, I step in the front door and I'm like, I stand right at the front door because I don't want him to come home. Not that I know he trusts me and stuff, but there's always that thought that, might, that the enemy might sink into your head, right? And you never even want that, that thought of a possibility to even be there, right? And so I just think it's good, right? Just to make sure that we're all above board, above reproach. So there's never a man and a woman in a situation where there could be question, even if everything's good, like even if there's no problem, there shouldn't be the question. It should never even come up in your head. So, um, so really, I mean, that's kind of it. That's all I have for you guys. You know, I, I think that, um, that they are both good. They are both great in their own time and place. And, um, and as long as they're glorifying the Lord and building up the body of Christ and you're, you're growing closer to the Lord, then there's nothing wrong with either of them, right? And I think that if you want that multi-gender Bible study, then get plugged into a home group, right? Or, or 
go to a, we, we don't have a, a midweek service. This is like our home groups are our midweek service and, and these things, but go to a midweek service, right? There's nothing wrong with it. I went to a, a, a men's group meeting a couple Mondays ago um, from, another, from another church and locally, and it was great. It was good. We had a good fellowship. And so that's all I got for you guys. Hey, I like that, Matt. Good job. I was thinking, you know, they was thinking about um, female Bible studies and just uh, it makes an opportunity for women to teach because, I mean, we have tons of opportunities for women to teach in women's Bible studies in kids' classrooms. That's a biblical command, but yet there are women that, that like to teach the Bible that want to do that, and that's a great opportunity for them to pour out the Word of God and, and encourage other ladies. So yeah, throw that in there too. Uh, okay, so my question is where does the Bible talk about purgatory? And I think it's a really good question. Um, I actually have a a joke. It's probably not that funny, but I'm going to tell it anyway. (laughs) So here it goes. It's kind of a dad joke, but it segues nicely into purgatory because you might not know what purgatory is. So here we go. Where do cats go when they die? Purgatory. (laughs) Okay. Let me just add this in here. Okay, so uh, yeah, it's bad. Uh, but actually, you know, that joke works in Spanish, in Italian, and French. So there you go. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, so purgatory has to do with the afterlife. But I, I want to add to that joke that cats don't go to purgatory and neither do people because purgatory ain't real. <laughs> and, and hopefully I'm going to make it a biblical case for that. But let's talk about what purgatory is first, Okay. So what is purgatory? We're going to define that. Second, we're going to look at um, purgatory from a biblical perspective. So here we go. What is it first? Okay, we get our English word purgatory from the Latin word purgatorium, which means place of cleansing. And in short, the Roman Catholic Church formally established the doctrine of purgatory in 1274 at the Second Council of Lyon, L-Y-O-N, and has, it's been reestablished and reconfirmed by other Catholic councils, um, the councils of Florence and Trent. So the doctrine of, the, of purgatory is supported by, this is what they point to. I went to catholic.com, which is a website. It's a Catholic apologetics website. So it's not associated with the Catholic Church technically, but everybody that works there is a Catholic, and they love Catholicism and Catholic doctrine. So this is where I get this information from. Um, so the, the doctrine of purgatory is supported by historical early church writings that include Augustine, Tertullian, and Chrysostom, among others, historical traditions shared with Orthodox Jews, the Apocrypha, which if you don't know what that is, it's another can of worms, but the Apocrypha is a set of writings that was added to the Septuagint. So that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So they had the Hebrew Bible and then Greek was like the main language. A lot of Jews spoke Greek. They translated it into Greek. And when that happened, they added additional writings to that, um, to that text. And those writings ended up translated into Latin and ended up in the Latin Vulgate Bible and are a part of the Catholic Bible today. However, those writings, the apocryphal writings, are in general rejected by Protestant uh, churches as not being inside the canon of Scripture. So it's supported by the Apocrypha, and there are some biblical texts um, 
there's one main one that they use, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that here in a minute. But those are, their, those are the things that they say. So we talked about the doctrine. What is purgatory? So it describes a place or a condition for some people after death, a place that is not heaven or hell, where they are purified from certain sins after dying. So, um, and they would say that you're purified from um, venial sins. So like they would say minor sins. So like imagine yourself driving and all of a sudden a log truck swerves into your lane. You're like, four letter word and you're dead. That would be a venial sin, right? It's not a mortal sin, but it's a sin that you didn't have time to confess and repent of. So you're going to purgatory. You got a one-way ticket to purgatory, but that's how the, that's how the doctrine works. Um, but there's certain sins not confessed and not repented of. You would go straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. I'm making a little light of it. but uh, So let's go to the question then, where does the Bible talk about purgatory? And so I am pulling from um, the this Catholic website and... Uh, as far as what they say their, their main proof text is for purgatory. Um, but I would argue the Bible does not talk about purgatory. And I hope to make that point, but I, I want to give the benefit of the doubt and let you decide for yourself. And I'll read the text. And I'm trying not to do a bad job at representing to you what people who believe in purgatory believe um, as best I can. So, okay, the main passage that is used as a proof text for the Catholic doctrine of purgatory is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 through 15. If, if I was going to try and support it, I'd use other passages, but I'm just taking from their material. So I would say, and um, one, before we actually read this scripture, one solid principle for scriptural interpretation is context is king. What is being talked about in the section, the passage, the chapter, and the surrounding chapters and then also, what's the context in, in the, um, the full counsel of the Word of God? So you have to look at Scripture in light of Scripture. And so in that vein, uh, the context of 1 Corinthians, it's a corrective letter to the church at Corinth, largely. And he's correcting the church in this chapter, chapter 3, because there's divisions. They fall into this trap of jealousy and strife. That's what it says in verse 3. Uh, with some saying, I follow Paul. And some say, Apollos is who I follow, right? So they're, they're, they kind of fall into this trap of celebrity pastors and, um, you know, people don't ever do that these days. But anyway, but Paul says in verse 9, he's speaking of himself and Apollos. He says, for we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. So he's basically saying, look, I don't have a beef with Apollos. We're just... We're just preaching the gospel, you know? And so then after that, he says, but you are God's field, God's building. So with that metaphor in mind, which is, um, which is from verse nine, we're gonna skip just two verses over to verse 11 and read this passage that um, the Catholics stand on as speaking of purgatory. So if you're reading ESV, um, that's what I'll be reading from. So here's verse 11, 1 Corinthians 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than wit that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work ha- that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, as though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so the proponents of the doctrine would say, well, what's talking about here is a purifying fire um, that takes place after death at the time of judgment, and uh, it's purifying the person that's being saved from sins that have been committed, um, you know, but, not, but, but haven't, been, um, haven't been atoned for. And I, w- I would say, um, you know, I'll just be blunt, that's a poor reading of the text. <laughs> Straightforward reading the text. If you look at it in context, it's cle- clearly talking about the work that somebody does in building on the foundation of Christ in a life. They, the people that he was writing to are the building, right? So the building is a, is a person. He's saying, look, once you've received Christ, you can choose what you're going to do with that. Are you going to add things that are valuable or truthful, right? Or are you going to put garbage on top of it? Um, and, and if it's, if, if these things are honoring to the Lord and valuable to the Lord, then, then, then you'll get a reward for that. But if you've added garbage to the foundation of Christ, you're not going to see any reward that what you think you've built, you'll lose, but you'll be saved. So it's not judging the person for salvation. It's judging the work that they've done in Christ, right? So, um, most commentators believe um, that he's talking about what we call the bema seat. Um, that's that word. Um, it's it's translated judgment seat of Christ in Second Corinthians five ten and Romans uh, fourteen ten, the second half of that through twelve. But the judgment seat, the bema seat, is um, it's a place where you'd receive rewards in the Olympics. You know, it's the little tiered thing where the first place person stands and then there's the lower one. Anyway, but you get, you get something, you get a reward. So most commentators believe that this is connected to those passages and it's actually just talking about uh, the Lord evaluating your, your good works rather than um, being saved. So I, I would say that that, that is uh, a better interpretation of what's going on here. Um, but I wanted to kind of return to uh, what does the Bible say um, about purgatory? Because I think there's some princi- principal things here um, that make purgatory a non-starter too. Even if you think, oh, your interpretation's, you know, messed up, that, you know, I, I, I agree with the Catholics on this one. Okay, fine. Well, let me just, let me just then address the principle of the idea of purgatory. So it's a place or a condition for some people after death that's not heaven or hell where they are purified from certain sins after dying. So well, the question you might be thinking is, well, which sins, right? We kind of talked about minor sins. So venial sins, well, they shouldn't be confused with mortal sins. Uh, mortal sins, like I said, will send people directly to hell. And so the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the Bible doesn't really make a distinction between um, minor sins and major sins, although you know, we know practically there's different consequences for us, but a minor sin will send you to hell just like a major sin will send you to hell, right? And so that, that is what the Bible teaches. So any sin, big or small, not covered by the blood of Christ will send you to hell. It's just, um, so here's another thing. If, if these people are, um, purified 
um, in in purgatory. Oh, how are they pur- how are they purified? So here's what the Compendium of, Ca- of the Catech- Catechism of the Catholic Church, published in 2005, and I'm quoting section 211, says about that. Because of the communion of saints, the faithful who are still pilgrims on earth, so we're talking about people who are not, have not passed on to eternity, are able to help the souls in purgatory by offering prayers and suffrage for them, especially the Eucharistic sacrifice. They also help them by almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance. So if a relative or a friend or anybody goes to purgatory, according to Catholic doctrine, you can help that person atone for their, um, their venial sins by doing these works, by um, almsgiving, indulgences, works of penance, and prayers for the dead. That, that is what um, Catholic doctrine teaches. Uh, whereas... Um, there's some scriptures, Isaiah 53, Romans 5, 8, and Ephesians uh, 2, 4 through 9, which I'll read here in just a sec. But they all make it clear that we are saved by God's grace through faith. That's trust alone in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. No other way. There's no work that I can do to save Matt. There's no work that I can do to save me. Jesus did it all. So let me just read that, that scripture really quick um, from Ephesians 2. You guys probably know it's very well known, but it's, it's, good, to, it's good to put a biblical point on, on what I'm saying. So here's Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 9, and I'm reading in ESV. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works are the result of salvation. Good works are the result of, they, they proceed from Christ's good works, but they do not um, in any way save us. And, or, or, or atone for our sins. Um, I got one more passage to read and I'll be done here. But uh, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, makes it clear that Christ's atoning sacrifice was once and for all and completely sufficient. So if you're having to be purified after death, that would mean uh, you're, what you're saying is, is that Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough to purify you from all sins, which is not what the Bible teaches, right? So here's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 to 14. It says, And every priest stands at his daily service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's speaking of the Old Testament priesthood, which was still in operation when this was written. But when Christ had offered for all, all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Yeah, I don't think the Bible talks about purgatory. I think that the Catholics are wrong. Um, God bless them, but... 
Um, and I don't think that that, um, that scripture, there are a few other scriptures, but for the sake of time, um, uh, they weren't, they're not the ones that they lean on. They just sort of read into these other scriptures, the idea that there's atonement for um, life after death. And so I'm not really going to go into them. Um, do you guys have anything to add? Yeah. That's a great, uh, great word, Marcus. Thank you. Does anyone have any follow-up questions to any one of these? Any fresh questions? <laughs> we are just about, I think we're pretty much out of time. We did have one question coming tonight, um, and Michael's going to cover that for us before. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're going to be done for the night. Um, we're going to save that. It's a great question. We're going to save it for next time so we can do it worth and also, just to let you guys know, we are pretty much out of questions, I think. I'm pretty sure we are. So um, if you guys have questions you'd like to submit so that we can try to dig through the word and try to find the answers, do that. Write them down. Maybe you've been witnessing to someone at work, at school, wherever. They ask you some questions. You're like, I don't know. Feel free to just send them in. Ask us. Maybe you, you know, heard some teaching on YouTube or, you know, you're like, that just, just, that just sounds weird. I don't know about that. Send the question in. We'll, we'll do our best to dig through the word of God to try to find an answer. And chances are, if you have the question, like I said before, there's probably scores of other people that have that same question. And uh, we're just believing that uh, this ministry is going to be a blessing to uh, whoever wants to ask questions. It's a blessing to us. So, yeah, I think we're good. So with that, we're going to... Let's pray really quick and then we'll be done. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for these questions. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would go out to everyone and uh, that you would do a work. We know that we can't even uh, understand Scripture without the Holy Spirit giving us understanding. Lord, you said that you would send the Holy Spirit to teach us all things. So we pray that you would um, do that in our hearts and our minds tonight, uh, that our minds would be, that, that we would be transformed. Lord, that our minds would be renewed, transformed by your word. And so uh, we just thank you for this time uh, with you. In Jesus' name, amen.